Bonjour Europe, this is Katie in Paris. Dominic is back in Amsterdam. Everything is as it should be. Hooray! Heep heep hurrah, as they say in the Netherlands. Do they? Or they say, no, I got that wrong. They say heep a peep. Hoorah. <laughs> anyway, I'm back and I've moved house. Yes, how is it? It's great, although um, I've found a few things that aren't ideal for podcasting in this house. Yeah. Namely, we live right by the Zouderkerk, which is a beautiful church in Amsterdam. But it like plays not only the bells every 15 minutes, but it plays like a song. And actually, at about 11 o'clock, which is in five minutes, it plays like a proper, like six minute song a different song every day on the church bells a different song every day well i might have made that up actually it might not be a different song every day but i think it's a variety of songs the last time i was here i think they were playing all you need is love no way that's awesome i really like that and the other thing that's not ideal is that it's totally open plan so (laughs) whenever my husband's here when we're recording you'll probably hear him Anyway, as I was just explaining to Katie, I'm going to make some changes to the setup of the house uh, simply for the sake of the podcast. <laughs> so I'm very dedicated. Yeah, Really expensive, drastic architectural changes to your flat. I'm really flattered that you would do that just for us and the listeners, Dominic. Thank you. Anything for the pod. Aww. How's your week been? Uh, it's been good. It is Thursday today, which is a bank holiday in France. What? Isn't that great? Midweek public holiday. I love this country. Why? Just because. No, I think it's a... Uh, yesterday was Halloween. So is it Hallow's Day? All Hallows? I don't know. I'm not very good at um, Christian holidays. But it's funny. This is a, technically a secular country, but obviously... All the public holidays are church-based. But anyway, it's really nice because it means everyone's going to go back to work tomorrow just for one day feeling very refreshed slash hungover or not go back at all, which is the other very French thing to do. So that's exciting. Apart from that, bought a new bike this week. Ooh, what happened to your old bike? Well, uh, there's nothing really wrong with it. I think it's fine. There were just like a few knobs missing here and there and like spokes sticking out at weird angles. But it does still roll along. So I'm going to keep it. I just thought I'd, I'd buy a new one because... People keep giving me pitying looks in the street. So I got this new one from uh, Amandine, my lovely friend and colleague. And as she was handing it over, she just gave me this very sympathetic look and said it was, quote, vraiment an upgrade. Uh, Isn't that harsh? No, she's just saying you're going up in the world, Katie. I am. It's a very beautiful Peugeot. It is 100% French classy wheels and you've got a spare bike now in town for me when i visit that is another bonus don't come now though it's really cold and miserable the weather has been weird oh yeah just before you left berlin it was still super warm right it was 21 degrees that's not right there's something going on i went home late the night before and it was two degrees and then i left the house in the morning with like all my scarves and coats and it was 21 degrees anyway more about that in a bit in good week bad week But what else have we got coming up in the show, Katie? Uh, We're going to be talking to the director of the Rijksmuseum in Amsterdam, one of Europe's biggest museums, fancy guest, director Taco Dibbets, about why they've decided to restore a little old painting called The Night Watch by a guy called Rembrandt and why they are doing that in front of the world for everyone to see. And then we're going to be speaking to Marjorie Morgan, who's written a really interesting article in the latest issue of Are We Europe called Black and European, A Better State of Affairs Than Black Americans. Marjorie is a playwright and writer and has some really interesting things to say about it in this article. So we're looking forward to chatting to her. But first... We really struggled this week not to make 
good week, bad week, actually bad week, worse week. It's been a bit of a shortage of good news around this week. So we might have bent the rules a bit and decided that instead of it being a bad week for Angela Merkel, it's been a good week for her opponents. Is that cheating? Yeah, it is. I spoke to Thomas, my husband, about this earlier. I was like, we're doing this. And he was like, yeah, that's really lazy, actually. Um, (laughs) It's not very well argued. And I don't think you should do that. But we're doing it anyway. Ha! Okay, well, screw you, Thomas. I'm going to make a very good argument right now about why it's been a very good week for Merkel's opponents. I am talking, of course, about the fact that she has announced that she'll be stepping down when her term is up in 2021. And even sooner than that, she'll be stepping down as leader of her party in December. So for the many rivals and enemies of Merkel who've been waiting to get rid of her for 13 years and as party leader for 18 years, pretty good week, I think. Merkel's announcement follows some pretty shocking election performances for her coalition, particularly state elections in Hesse the weekend before last. And uh, if you read the approximately 9,681 think pieces that have been written about what might happen next, there is a lot of chatter about the possibility that whoever takes over from her at the head of her Conservative Party might be someone that wants to shift things further to the right. Because one of the most obvious things that you'll notice if you follow German politics in the last couple of years is the astonishing rise of the far-right IFD party, now the biggest opposition party in Parliament, which is disturbing. So there's a couple of names floating around about who might want to take the party in that direction. But then there's also talk that it might be someone cut from the same cloth as her, like, deep breath, Anna Gretz kramp Karrenbauer. Don't make me say that again. Who's also who's known as AKK. That's a lot easier to say. I'm going to call her AKK. A lot of people are saying that um, depending on who it is that takes over the party in December, if it is one of her big old rivals, like this guy Friedrich Merz, instead of AKK, Merkel could get forced out early. What I will say, though, is that people have written Merkel off many, many times before and said, nope, she's over, it's done. But you never know. She's stuck around this long. She could well stick around even longer and surprise us all. Who knows? Who knows? I have to say, I didn't hear a lot of what you were saying because these bloody church bells were playing that song. <laughs> <laughs> um, so It was all very clever. But I am totally convinced you've won me over. Thomas is wrong. Yeah, thank you very much. I think the, one of the reasons why it feels like a weird one to put in Good Week is because... We're a European podcast and whilst we're not specifically politically aligned and definitely not to her party, there's no doubt that Merkel has been one of the best politicians of the last decades to like help the European project. Well, actually, maybe that's not true because... I think some Greeks might disagree with you on that one. Yeah, no, that's true. And also there is an argument that it's her fault that Brexit happened because she uh, didn't give... Cameron enough before the Brexit uh, vote was announced. Isn't that true? Why is it up to Merkel to have to do that? But this is the thing, like, we kind of talk about her sometimes like, you know, there's that Twitter account, Queen of Europe. We talk about her sometimes like she is the only leader in Europe that matters. And it's definitely true that she is the most powerful national leader. And she's had a huge influence on shaping Europe over the last 13 years. You know, like, if you look at how Europe responded to the Greek crisis and, like, the war in Ukraine, she has had a massive impact. But... You can't blame the woman for everything. No, that's true. Well, you certainly can't blame her for what is sitting in our bad week slot. It's been a very bad week in Italy where at least 30 people have been killed due to extreme weather in some of the worst storms the country has seen in decades. The situation was particularly tragic in Sicily where there were disastrous scenes and multiple deaths. 
the extreme weather initially came to my attention with the extraordinary photos that were coming out of St. Mark's Square in Venice, which had 1.5 metres of water and had people swimming in the square before it was evacuated. It really is an extraordinary sight seeing this most famous square so deeply underwater. Um, And St. Mark's Basilica, the famous church in the square, was flooded up to 90 centimetres inside. And the chief administrator said that conservative estimates suggested that it had aged 20 years in just one day. Ah. Now, I know we're all aware of the fact that Venice is vulnerable to flooding, uh, but the images were certainly a stark wake-up call that something needs to be done quickly. I hope that the bizarre novelty of people swimming in a place that is normally on land serves as a wake-up call to those who are in denial. Venice is in trouble. But it wasn't just Venice. Um, The destructive weather spread far and wide, The destruction is going to require a lot of spending to repair and rebuild damaged areas. This comes at a time when Italy is already caught in a budgetary battle with the EU after Brussels rejected the proposed Italian budget, as Katie mentioned last week, due to an already enormous deficit. Whilst these kind of catastrophic storms aren't heard of, we know that they are happening more frequently due to the effects of man-made climate change. This is just another reminder that we need to do everything we can to protect our planet. Italy, our thoughts are with you and we hope that things clear up soon. We are now going to be speaking to a very exciting guest. Taco Dibbets is the general director of one of the greatest museums in the world, the Rijksmuseum, home of one of the world's most loved paintings, the Militia Company of District Second under the command of Captain Francis Bannock Cock. Say that again. The Militia Company of District Second under the command of Captain Francis Bannock Cock. Very good. Which is also known as the Night Watch. So this painting is visited by like over 2 million visitors each year and it was painted by the Dutch hero Rembrandt. Love him. We are calling Taco to find out about a very public restoration process that is going to start next year. They're going to be building a glass box around the Night Watch and the restorers are going to be working on making this painting beautiful again. Oh God, that was an accidental Trump quote. Was it? Yeah, I said, let's make this painting beautiful again. It's already beautiful, much like America. It is, that's true. Or it was never beautiful, much like America. Oh, let's get into that later. So they're going to be like working on this thing in public with visitors able to see what they're doing and people all over the world can tune in on the live stream. It is very cool. And Teco is here on the line, just down the road from Dominic, actually, in the Rijksmuseum in Amsterdam, to tell us why this very famous painting is getting a very public makeover. Uh, I saw it not that long ago, and it still looked pretty good, given that it was finished in 1642. Why have you decided to restore it now? When you stand from a distance, it does look quite all right. But we are continuously monitoring the uh, the condition of the painting, and we found that over the past years, a whitish haze appeared over the lower part of the painting, and we would like to discover what that exactly is, and then treat it in the best way possible so it, it doesn't progress. So you're doing this restoration in public with the eyes of the world, both online and in the building, watching closely. What's the idea behind being so transparent in this process? Well, the Night Watch is admired by over two and a half million people a year, and we feel that everybody has the right to see it. It also helps the uh, restorers 
in the time frame. You never really know as a restoration how long it's going to take. And if we would take it off view, they would have to finish at a certain moment, precise in time. And now we finish when the work is finished. And um, I think the Night Watch deserves that. It deserves all the attention we can give it. And that's why we decided to uh, restore it in public. It's quite interesting that you said that it's going to take some of the pressure off the people doing the restoration. Because I was thinking, isn't being watched going to sort of put them under loads of pressure because everyone's watching them as they're standing there hesitating with a paintbrush over like one of the world's most famous paintings? They usually work in a room with many conservators there and, and curators there. They never work in pure isolation. And it's work for which you have to concentrate so much that your surroundings just disappear. I think they might be wearing headphones and listening to kind of nice music once they're doing it, but it won't be. Um, they have the feeling that they'd rather have less of a pressure time-wise so they can do the restoration um, the best way possible than to um, have to work under pressure time-wise but work in isolation. I like it. It's a bit like a kind of, it's performance art that you're bringing to the Rijksmuseum. Um, I was wondering, so presumably the conservators, they have to make decisions when they're conserving this painting and restoring it. And they can't know exactly what Rembrandt wanted or what it looked like exactly when it was made. How, How often are the decisions they make controversial and how often do you have to go through many steps of discussion with different conservators to like decide specific colors and that kind of thing? Well, we'll be a team of eight conservators working on it and 10 researchers, and they obviously are in continuous communication also because you can follow it online with conservators from all over the world. And I hope there will be many debates and discussions about it. But in the end, the conservator who works on it, we've got a a great team who has a long uh, experience with restoring paintings by Rembrandt, in the end, they will have to do what they deem best as experts. The advantage we have with the Night Watch is that we have quite an early copy of the painting, much smaller. It's on loan from the National Gallery in London and always hangs side by side to the Night Watch, that that gives very good reference material. As it's such a famous painting, it's been copied many times and also the, it has been photographed many times. So we have very early photographs of it as well. And that will all help us to give information on what the painting looked like. I hear it was last restored in the 70s, I believe. Presumably the technique of conservation and restoration has changed significantly since then. Is there ever a feeling that the restorers are having to undo some of the work of previous generations. So I was talking about the white haze that appeared on the painting over the last uh, years. We are going to research that. But the other reason why we're restoring it is that the retouching of the 1970s has discolored. So we will remove probably the retouching. And we nowadays have paint types that are more stable than the ones that were used in the 70s. And the lighting of the painting doesn't have any UV light in it anymore. And UV, um, well, you know it from when you leave things out in the sun, helps discoloring. So that's why we, um, why we will uh, remove the old retouchings and replace them with new ones. Uh-huh. Um, that last restoration in the 70s, I think, happened after the painting got attacked? Yeah. 
The Night Watch was always a very famous painting, so many, many tourists already in the 18th century came to see it. And in the 20th century, it was attacked three times. One time in 1911 with a knife, one time in 1975 with a knife, and then it was really slashed at several, um, at several points in the painting by somebody who was uh, at grave mental problems. He thought the man in white was God and the man in black was the devil. Mm. And that actually caused the restoration. We had to restore it because it was really, it was badly damaged. Because I was going to say, it's got a crazy history, this painting, apart from all the attacks. It was hidden in a cave during World War II, I think, to keep it safe from the Nazis. Can you still see, to any extent, the wear and tear and, and the scars from all those crazy things that have happened to the painting. Yeah, the painting was, when it was made, it was hanging in the, in the clubhouse, one could say, of the civic guards of the city of Amsterdam. And at a certain point, it turned into a hotel. Um, there were parties given, so it was covered with lots of layers of tar from smoke and probably also some drinks that flew against it. And then it was moved from that clubhouse to the town hall and two pieces were cut off it to make it fit in between doors. And then in the 20th century, it was, it was attacked three times and it was moved during the Second World War to a hiding place, first in the dunes in the Netherlands, but as that became too, um, too dangerous a place, it was moved to the south of the Netherlands and was hidden in a cave. And I remember when I just started to work at the Rijksmuseum, I received a letter of a very old lady whose husband was the man who was the captain of the barge that brought the night watch back from the caves um, to Amsterdam. It was transported by, by a barge. Wow. Um, and she describes how he actually, when they were going to unload it, fell on top of it. It was rolled up oh and God. he um, fell on top of it. <laughs> so wow. it, it. Quite a lot happened. So it has a track of history. But when one looks at it, it is amazing that it has survived and that it is uh, in not as bad a condition as it might sound when I'm talking about it. Is there any argument that you should restore the strips that were cut off? It's impossible to reconstruct them. Okay. The painting technique of Rembrandt and the surface of the paintings of Rembrandt is so complex, and also that's his genius, that it would, be, it would not help the painting if you would have them uh, reconstructed and hang them next to it. What we will do is we will continue to search for them because the Dutch keep their attics clean, so I don't think we would expect to find them somewhere in an attic, but what we do see is that Dutch paintings often are painted on canvases that were already used by a painter before. So you sometimes find a still life with under it portrait, because mm-hmm. we are very mean. <laughs> Dutch are very mean, so they <laughs> reuse canvases and, um, and panels uh, quite often. So maybe one day we will find parts of it, um, of the pieces that were cut off, reused in another painting. What an amazing thought. The Night Watch is often seen as like the quintessential Dutch painting, capturing kind of Dutch identity and particularly Dutch democracy. I was wondering whether you could tell us a bit about what you think it is in the painting itself that makes it feel so inherently Dutch. Well, the Rijksmuseum, the National Museum, was constructed around the painting as a cathedral for the arts. But in the Netherlands, at the high altar, 
There is not a Christ on the cross or there is not a king, but it is uh, the Night Watch, which is a painting that depicts Burgos, the man who made the city of Amsterdam. And I think it shows that the Netherlands are a civic society with a deep civic pride. And I think that makes it so typical Dutch. But even more important, I think, for today is that the man on the painting um, come from all different kinds of religious denominations. They're Protestants, they're Catholics, they're Jews, they're all from different cultures, and um, they stand together. And they are the ones who protect the city together. So that's what makes it Dutch. Final question for me. What is it about the Night Watch that makes it, in your view, such a masterpiece? Rembrandt was a rebel. He didn't follow the rules of art. And in the Night Watch, he did something that nobody else had done before. He was given the commission to paint a group portrait. And portraits are very um, formulaic. Usually we all stand, and we still do today, we all stand in a row with our faces facing the camera. And what Rembrandt did, he was commissioned to paint a portrait, but he painted a story. He painted a history piece, as if it's nearly a religious, um, a biblical scene with dramatic lighting, which reminds you of, of Italian painting, and um, a group of people that is in complete chaos. I always compare it, just imagine that you have your school photograph taken and you get it sent home and you open it and you see that the photographer made a photograph of the children when they were still running around to the playground before they were standing in line. And that's exactly what Rembrandt does. He captures his moment just before the troops have formed and before everybody's standing in a row. And there's a lot of things happening on the painting. And that, I think, is Rembrandt the rebel who never does um, what he's asked to do. So, Dominic, you live like 10 minute cycle away from the Rijksmuseum. Yes. Are you going to go and watch this restoration in the flesh or are you just going to go and watch it on the live stream? Uh, well, I guess sometimes I'll have to leave my new house, although I'm just happy to cocoon in here. Yeah, I'll go and have a look at it. I've got a museum card after all, so I get in for free. Oh yeah, that is cool. I, th- I like that they're just putting it in a glass box, as you said in the interview. Like it kind of makes the process itself like a piece of performance art. And it reminds me of this exhibition I saw in Paris last year by this mad French artist called Abraham Poincheval, who locked himself in this glass box for a month in the gallery, sitting on some eggs and trying to hatch them with his body heat. Wow, that's great. That reminds me of that Sex in the City episode where uh, they go and see a performance artist who's living in this weird glass box. Maybe that's where he got it from. I should have shouted at him through the glass. Did you get this from Sex in the City? He probably did, although I don't think she was sitting on eggs. That's definitely novel. Did it work? There was a lot of um, speculation that he would end up just like kidding the chickens. I'm not sure what happened. I will have to look into that and get back to you. But anyway, isn't art amazing? It sure is. We're going to be now speaking to 
another artist, a playwright. We're going to be speaking to Marjorie Morgan, who's in Liverpool. Now, Marjorie is suffering from a pretty nasty cold, so we are incredibly grateful to her for speaking to us despite that. She's a trooper. Get well soon, Marjorie. Get well soon, Marjorie. She's um, written this really interesting article in Are We Europe, the continent's most beautiful magazine. As you know, we've been ringing up some of its writers over the last few weeks, talking about everything from Netflix to rap music to freedom of speech. This week, as Dominic said, we're going to Liverpool, which is where we recorded our very first episode, if you'll remember, those many moons ago, to talk to Marjorie about the experience of being a black European versus being a black American. Now, you have written uh, an article in the latest issue of Are We Europe? Could you give us like a very brief outline of what you wrote about and why you decided to write about this? Yeah, we're always hearing about black Americans uh, having such a hard time because racism is so prevalent over there. I wanted to compare it with the situation of black Europeans. There was a statistic in your article that particularly shocked me, uh, that the median wealth for white households in America is $171,000, and for black households it's just 17600 That is such an extraordinary statistic, and I imagine things aren't as bad as that in Europe, but then I was also thinking there's probably not good data in Europe because some countries, such as France, don't collect any data that is connected to race. Was that a challenge when you were researching this article finding kind of equivalent statistics within Europe? Yes, most definitely. Um, as you say, France, they refuse to accept data based on, on race because it goes against the identity of everybody being just French. Most European countries don't keep that data. The financial data, it was difficult to find a comparison throughout Europe. So after looking at all of this for quite a long time, not just financial equality, but discrimination more widely and racism in the justice system and things like that. Did you decide in the end that you'd rather be black in America or black in Europe? There's no way I'd want to be in America. It's just far too dangerous. It's bad enough here. But the, the racism here generally is more subverted. In America, it's overt. So tell me, because you were born to Jamaican parents in Wiltshire in Western England, and you've written a lot about what it's like to juggle those different identities. What happens when you throw having a European identity into the mix? Does that make things even more confusing? Well, my life basically is a juggling act. At home, we had the West Indian culture. And as soon as I stepped out, you know, to go to school or anywhere else, I had to don a different identity to assimilate so it's always been a case of constant switching, code switching, as I think they call it in America. In Europe, it's easier to be accepted as a black person in the wider context of Europe than it is in, in England. Generally, I found that the countries that I've travelled in, when I've travelled to France, Italy and various other places beyond that, I'm more easily accepted than when I'm in England. <laughs> We've talked about this on the podcast before, about how race intersects with European identity. I'm mixed race, but I feel pretty comfortable calling myself European. But we had the French activist Rocaya Diallo on the show a few months ago. And she was saying that while she believes in European values, 
she finds it hard not to look at Europe and see colonialism, right? And particularly what European powers did in Africa where her family come from. It's it's kind of an elephant in the room, really, when you're talking about being black and European. It's something that the Europeans don't like to acknowledge, that black people are linked, intrinsically linked to the European concept of identity. Blackness was created to diametrically oppose the concept of whiteness in order to shore up the system of racism that was created to reinforce the system of slavery. In popular image, we are seen as newcomers, whereas in reality, you know, places like Scotland, Switzerland, France, Belgium, they all have Moorish names in their town names. There is evidence, uh, DNA evidence, that the first Britons had black to dark skin. That has not been greeted very well by the far right in the country. Well, I guess one of the similarities between being black in America and being black in Britain, at least, is that uh, there was this big declaration that we are now living in post-racial societies, firstly in America when Obama was elected, and then now in the UK after Meghan Markle, a mixed-race American woman, joins the royal family. But I, I imagine you would agree with me that we are by no means living in a post-racial society in either America or Europe. I don't think we're fortunate enough to say that anything is post-racial. This weekend, actually, in my home city of Liverpool, a far-right group are attending the city to march and to say that people of colour should be eliminated or taken out of the country and sent back to wherever. Jesus. (laughs) I know. (laughs) But Liverpool has a very strong history of socialism and equality. And every time these people come, the whole city turns out and tells them in no uncertain terms that they're not welcome. (laughs) They won't get very far here. Do go and check out Marjorie's play. If you're in the Liverpool area, we'll post a link to it in our Twitter feed. This is our final interview with the writers of the latest issue of the magazine, and we've really enjoyed talking to them, and I hope you've enjoyed listening to them. Um, If you still want to buy a magazine, a copy you can hold in your hands, type in the code EuropeansPod when you're buying it on their website, areweeurope.com. And you'll get yourself a cheeky little 15% discount. So before I start with this happy ending, I have a quick note. Um, A lot of our happy endings come from the Netherlands, which you may have noticed. And a lot of our guests, actually, as well. We've been going Dutch recently. Yeah, it's true. It's not great. Maybe this is because loads of happy things happen here. Or maybe, perhaps, more likely, it's because I live here and they're the stories I hear about. So this is a quick call out to any of our listeners from places that are not the Netherlands or the UK, actually, or France or Germany to send me suggestions if you think you see a good candidate for a happy ending in your neck of the woods. We really want to cover the continent as broadly as possible, and with your help, we could get better at that. Yeah. So, this week, we are in Limburg, the southernmost of the 11 provinces of the Netherlands, famous for the beautiful city of Maastricht and the omnipresent violinist come band leader André Rieu. Who? André Rieu. He, he plays the violin a bit and has these women dressed up in like traditional puffy pink dresses what? and plays weird songs, popular songs and a kind of semi-Viennese style. Classical music is so weird. Oh, it's not, but I wouldn't call it classical music. 
that's me being snooty. It's just like one step away from Buble. Yeah, it's one step away from Buble, but everyone in like Viennese outfits. And he happens to be Dutch. Okay. I digress. Anyway, Limburg is also the place from whence a man, Harry van der Schoot, found himself in a pretty horrible situation. Harry has been burdened with terrible debts, and as part of the bailiff's seizure, they seized one of his two dogs, a six-year-old named Nero. How is this a happy ending? Yeah, I know. They left the eight-year-old one, which is good, presumably because they thought that the younger one was more valuable. Mm. So I'm not going to drag this story out because the segment is meant to cheer you up. But happily, the dog has been returned after Harry paid off an undisclosed amount of his debt. Oh, thank God. Yeah, this is a happy ending for Harry. But it brings into question, should bailiffs be allowed to seize pets as if they are belongings? No. No. This is going to expose my British attitude towards animals. But that's like taking a member of the family away. It's really cruel. And lots of people would agree with you, I think. And the reason why it happened is due to a rather weird, outdated law that goes back to 1838, a time where animals were more likely to have some value to you economically. So it doesn't really account for the fact that domestic animals are now thought of as part of the family. And that for many people, confiscating your dog is one of the worst possible imaginable acts. Fortunately, this case has caught the attention of various important people and there is now pressure for a change in this legislation. Mm. Oh, but this was not... It's another happy ending that's not very happy, wasn't it? Sorry. (laughs) No, the important thing is that he's got his dog back, so... Yeah. All is well for... What's his name, Harry? Harry and Nero, reunited. We're really happy for you. Well, I hope our episode hasn't made you too miserable with bad week, worst week and a not very happy ending. <laughs> At least we had the Rijksmuseum uplifting us. Tales of people slashing paintings. Spilling beer on them. I love that. Such disrespect for one of the world's greatest paintings. Next week, I think my end of the show will be coming from London town. Uh, just to warn you listeners, I think the show is going to be coming considerably more often from London because my boyfriend's just moved there, which is really good and I'm really happy, but it means more time on the Eurostar for all muggins here. I was going to tell you, Dominic, one thing that's good is that my boyfriend has moved down the road from European's jingle composed Jim Barn. So I can just go over there all the time and coerce him into making us more jingles. Isn't that great? Yes, we haven't had a new jingle for ages. Get your act together, Jim. We haven't asked him for any. I think that's probably why. Uh, But you will be at home in Amsterdam with the bells. With the bells. Maybe we don't need the jingles now we've got the bells. (laughs) That's true. Um, We'll just time the end of our segments perfectly for the bells to come in. I love this idea. Anyway, I've got to go because I've got a washing machine arriving, hopefully. But that won't stop me from tweeting. So do follow us if you don't already. Uh, If you don't already, where have you been? It's at EuropeansPod and on Instagram, EuropeansPodcast. And you can send us an email, europeanspodcast at gmail.com. And I'm serious. Do send me some suggestions for happy ending stories. I would really appreciate that. Please do. We need to wean them off his Dutch addiction. Wherever you are, listeners, we wish you a lovely week. Stay warm and dry. I felt like I had to play you out with something Merkel related this week. And there is one obvious choice. It is Ruf Mich Angela by the Slovenian comedian Clemens Laconia. It's quite an assault on the eyes as well as the ears. So lovely. Check it out on YouTube. But I had to do it really. Sorry about that. See you next week, everyone. Ciao. Bye. Whoops, everybody shout. Putin, put out.